0: And here's what's interesting to me (laughs) is that a a lot of social workers, if you talk to social workers in the homeless space, they'll tell you. When I go and say hi to Joe, he tells me to screw off, okay, the first time. The second time I show up and now he sort of says a couple sentences and then he's like, okay, I'm done here. The third day, maybe I show up with a cup of coffee and he takes the coffee. The fourth day, maybe I sit with him for an hour. Maybe it takes three weeks But after I work on it long enough, I get him to a place where I convince him that he should walk down a couple blocks of me and look look at a housing option.
1: Homelessness in rich American cities reveals poverty, not just material, but social, spiritual poverty, and tears in our social fabric. But former Secretary of Housing for California, Ben Metcalf, talks about some of the ways these tears are being mended on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics, about history and culture and religion. I'm your host, Chris Adinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I answer every single email. My guest today is Ben Metcalf. He was Secretary of Housing and Community Development in California between 2015 and 2019 during the Jerry Brown administration, a time when the state greatly expanded its authority and reach in the sector of housing and land use. Before that, he was in Washington working for the Obama administration as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. These days, he's at the University of California here in Berkeley working on the same familiar question. How can we get our people into good housing, quality, affordable housing? He's teaching as a professor at the Department of City and Regional Planning. And he's also managing director of the Turner Center for Housing Innovation and CEO of Turner Housing Innovation Labs. I've known Ben for 30 years. That's two thirds of my life since we were teenagers in the same scout troop. And we worked as counselors at the same scout camp. I'm godfather to his son. Ben's an Episcopalian and his wife is a Catholic. They are two of the loveliest, most generous and fun people Walking on this planet. So Ben, welcome to the show. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics. I'm so glad to have you here tonight.
0: My pleasure. Real treat to be here.
1: Do you have any jokes to share? And uh, I should tell our warn our audience that we both have small children.
0: <laughs> yes. So um, let me try this one out on you and your audience. Uh, how do you keep in touch with a fish, Chris? I don't know. <laughs> oh, you drop them a line. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you want to spend a good night with a, with a cow,
1: what's a what's a great choice? <laughs> Something like moon. Take, take him to the movie. <laughs> oh, movie. Okay. I thought you were going to say moon. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, I think on the moon would be good too. Yeah. yeah. No. And if, and if you're uh, saying goodbye to a
1: beaver, <laughs> nice on <gnawing> you maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you spent a lot of your life uh, working on housing. And when I remember when you were um, out of out of college at at Amherst and out of the Kennedy School of uh, Government, and you showed me the thing you were building here in Oakland for the bridge corporation, you've been trying to figure out how to get people housed and housed well and housed in a fruitful and productive way. And and yet here in California, we have a uh, what we would consider outsiders would consider a housing crisis. Certainly, this is something people talk about a lot. Certainly. Going to Civic Center in San Francisco is a lot more difficult, especially with small children. I took my kids to the opera last month, and it was way rougher than I remember even five years ago. Just the amount of um, uh, not just squalor, but sort of a spiritual poverty about people just laying around on the sidewalk, half undressed, needles, feces. It's a mess. Um, But when I talked this over with you over dinner, I think last fall at this point. You said there's a lot of things you are not noticing because we only notice the, the worst. So um, there's a lot of invisible homelessness. Maybe we dramatize it, just we tourists or we people who watch the news. And we had this long and exciting discussion. And at that point, we first agreed that you would come on the show and, and give us a, a deeper look and perhaps a corrective to the narrative. So my first question is, who are the homeless?
0: Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, I think there's a there's a visible unhoused homeless community, which is what tends to take most of our attention. Um, and there's a much larger community of folks who are unhoused and very vulnerable, but they may not be living on the street or in a tent. Um, they're doubled up. They're you know, on somebody's couch with a lot of people living out of their cars. So just to put that in perspective here in California, I think the there's a every every february there's a big count that takes place volunteers go out on the streets and actually literally try and do a tally of everybody that they can find uh and i think in this last year it was something like 170,000 people who were um uh counted in that in that process as being unhoused they're in a in a on the streets or in the shelters in california um, but if 100 000... Ca- just just in california yeah but actually if you look um, at the number of folks who have had contact with the sort of homelessness system over the course of a year, it's much, much larger. It's like five hundred and seventy thousand altogether. I think one hundred and thirty thousand in California approximately are our kids, for example, you never you don't really see families. families are, are a perfect example of a community that's that's fairly invisible. Um, they They tend to be much more likely to be in a shelter, for example, or in a hotel or in some other kind of temporary accommodation. So and then you know and then i think what's what's painful is that you know we also have a weird thing that's going on in places like california and really in a lot of other coastal communities in in the us where even folks who are housed and you know are sort of paying rent are sort of pushed into what feels a lot like functional poverty because even though they might make a decent income they're, they're plowing all of that uh, or almost all of that Uh, back into rent and they're not in a position where they're able to, you know, amass any savings or build any kind of reserve. And so, you know, it is this very perilous situation where, you know, they're one medical injury or one car accident or one ticket away from, from themselves falling into homelessness.
1: And so that kind of person might not make rent, might get evicted, might stay with a a family member or a friend. And then a few months later might be able to find something else. Or yeah, you, actually, or you can what, help them. You can reach them as a you know as the state. Hey, here's a yeah. voucher. And,
0: and those folks, I mean that that is so in some sense that that's a more common and sort of curable fix, right? People who are temporarily falling into homelessness, they're they're relying on friends, they're relying on family, and they're figuring out dusting themselves off, getting back up, and, and into it. We often do differentiate that uh, from those who are chronic homeless, which are folks who have long-term and or recurring stays in homelessness. Um, that That's the community of folks who, uh, they need housing, but often they also need sort of a package of services and supports to figure out how to stabilize. They may have a mental health challenge or physical disability. They may have a substance use issue. And so they probably need, they definitely need housing, but they also probably need some other supports.
1: So, and what percent would you guess, what percentage are sort of these people for whom I have great sympathy and identify with, a lot like they're working really hard they're trying to make ends meet and something happens they they broke their leg they lost their job they got evicted and uh here you can come as the as the you know as the government and say here's here's a check to help you out and let's get you back in a house and what percentage are chronic homeless the sort of radically dramatically uh they're definitely poor in many ways including socially mentally and so on
0: yeah they're not so first of all one of the really Pernicious things is they're not they're not always a different population there's a lot of crossover and in fact one of the really painful things that we're seeing happening in california is that um the duration of the homelessness experience has been steadily increasing hmm. and one of the problems is is that even somebody who sort of presents as being fairly independent and you know a, you know working poor you know, the moment that they hit that stretch of homelessness in their lives, like things start going off the rails. And so uh, those folks who may have been able to keep their mental health under, under control when they're stably housed, who might not have had a substance abuse issue when they were housed, who might, their physical disability might not have been manifesting itself when they're housed, as that stretch of homelessness gets longer and longer, those issues start becoming more and more pronounced. And so you start seeing this this sort of crosswalk, and particularly in places like California, where where folks are spilling into that chronic homeless population, the homeless homeless population is is growing. I mean, I think that, you know, just maybe somewhat helpful, I think maybe one in five people who are homeless in California have a serious mental illness. Okay. uh, And probably two in five have some sort of long-term permanent disability.
1: That's not, that's a lot better than I would have thought. And I bet we had this exact conversation, you know, last fall, because when I think of a homeless person, I have a stereotype in my mind. But no, you're saying 80% are, they're just poor and you can help them. That's really good news, I think. I don't think we, we know it, it, that. So, as so,
0: so, so I, 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 I get why you say that's really good news. And, and I hear you. Uh, another take though, Chris, is it's actually really, really bad news. Because it suggests that the, the vast majority of people who are homeless are there because, you know, not because they have a mental health problem, but because like, the system is sort of failing them, right? Like they can't, we don't have resilience. Uh, You know, we don't have enough decent, well-paying jobs. We don't have a a robust enough sort of social safety safety network. And particularly in California, you know, the rent is just too damn high. And Mm -hmm. the thing that I think a lot of people, you know, people often are, are staggered by the homeless population in California, and they should be, I think, you know, one in four people who are homeless in this country are California homeless, right? And and that, I think, is really confounding to people. And, and it's very quick to sort of say, well, that must be because they travel from out of the state or the weather's so nice or, you know, there's something about California that drives people into mental, <laughs> become mentally ill. <laughs> uh, but, but the answer is totally different. The answer is uh, the reason why homelessness rates are so high in California is because there is a huge mismatch between what poor people in the state are making from an income perspective and how much a low-end apartment costs to rent, which is another way of just saying the rent is too damn high. And in fact, if you, you, by any measure, so people often try to say, well, what's the cause for homelessness? How do you predict homelessness? And people look at things like, you know, yeah, like the preponderance of mental illness or they look at substance use issues, but the single biggest predictor of how many homeless people you're going to find in any location is going to be what's called worst case housing needs which is a technical term of art that that basically looks at what is the share of low extremely low-income people who are paying more than half their income and if that number is really high then the homeless population is really high and so the reason why that's sort of a depressing place to land is because the fixes for that are really system-wide, right? Like, how do you actually get the rent to come down in California by $1,000 a month across the board? How do you actually get, I don't know, low-wage workers in California to get an additional $10 an hour in compensation? Like, that's actually the level of change that we would need to see to sort of fix California's problem. But to solve that is a massive structural change to like how our basic society is organized.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, No, I I appreciate that. And that is... uh humbling because i have no idea how to fix that uh maybe too many of us want to live here if you were lived in montana or louisiana you wouldn't be paying the same rent um yeah but, that, but everybody wants to live here it's a different problem and i don't know that it's one that you are in a position to fix or even your boss the governor you know who, who commands an economy the size of france <laughs> is in a position to to fix
0: So so what do you say? What do you say? What do you guys talk about? Yeah. So the scale of the issue is, is humbling. And, you know, just to give one example, I think the city of Los Angeles pretty significantly rallied a huge amount of sort of the political civic leadership a couple years back to pass a major bond where they, they they levied a new tax and and raised a billion dollars just for the city to invest in new, Housing for to help get folks off the streets and into stable housing. And it was heralded as this huge triumph that would really turn the tide on LA's growing homelessness problem. And it was something like, you know, the estimates at the time were like that billion dollars would end up sort of supporting um, maybe it was 20,000 units over a couple of years. But over the same time period, something like 82,000 people had fallen into homelessness. So these these kinds of very major investments have been really hard to swallow. And actually, one of the things I appreciated about Jerry Brown. Uh, he, was a, he was a wonderful governor to work for in many ways. He he had a very clear North Star uh, in terms of uh, really wanting to sort of keep things simple. He was very resistant to a lot of process and procedures. He really didn't think that government was the answer in many ways. He, he really believed that, we, you know, we needed to create solutions that really allowed people to, to throw themselves up by the bootstraps. I remember you know, we, we always, the legislature when I was working from, always wanted to create new commissions and new working groups. He was always <laughs> be telling him because he's like, we, we don't need more commissions. We yeah. Just, you know, we just, we just need government to do some basic stuff. And, you know, I think the temptation for any leader is to sort of, you know, try and fight too many buyers all at the same time. And and he, when I came on, he, he was very leery of trying to get into this sort of housing and homelessness issue because I think he realized how big of an issue, how hard of a solution it would be and the legislature you know pretty consistently kept sort of saying hey you know we need to put some more money at this and he uh would would come back and say you know whatever money you know you think we might want to throw at this issue won't solve the issue right you know it might create a few ribbon cuttings for a few of you (laughs) i guess a couple buildings get built and you know a couple lucky folks get housed but we're not fixing the underlying uh issue here and and he was pretty know quick I think to to put out there and push for sort of broader changes and so you know one of the things that I worked with him quite a bit on and I'm really thinking about 2016-2017 as this issue was really coming to the fore in California was what are the sort of systems level issues in the state that are just preventing there from being enough housing right like you know when you look at other parts of the country, um, you know, Atlanta is a great example of a, of a really strong economy that, um, you know, has grown uh, significantly over the years, hasn't had the same kind of homeless problem. Houston is another good example. You know, one of the big differentiators between Atlanta or Houston is that the sort of, the market has been able to provide a lot of housing. And it's not all luxury housing. It's often, you know, housing that's sort of entry level um, that doesn't mm-hmm. require government subsidy that helps keep you know, the rents down. And so, you know, he basically uh, pushed really hard to say, okay, if we are going to make some money available to help build uh, subsidized housing, we need to at the same time try and fix some of these causes and try and figure out ways to sort of uh, open up more opportunities for folks to build and, and really pushed to try and cut through some of the really like red tape that a lot of the more af- particularly affluent and exclusive communities in California have imposed over the years that have sort of illegalized multifamily housing that imposed huge taxes on folks who wanted to build. Um and it's interesting, you know if, if I think about my own progression, it sort of mirrors that journal journey as well. I actually when I graduated from college, my, my first job was actually working for uh, somebody who was converting hotels uh, mm-hmm. into housing for homeless. Um, that was actually my first entry into the field was this a real visceral satisfaction of, Hey, we're going to you know, convert a hotel, make it available for folks coming off the street, help them get stabilized, help them get housed. Uh, I actually, for my first year out of college, I lived in one of these buildings. I, my neighbors were folks who were coming off the streets. Um, I talked to them, you know, late in the evenings, yeah. many weekends. Uh, they would share their life stories and they would say to me like, look, this opportunity to move into this sort of permanent and yet supported, you know, very modest department is the thing that has allowed me to get my life in order.
1: Yeah, that's and, perfect,
0: and and to really move move forward. And I and it was what sort of put me into this field. Um, but over the course of my uh, over the course of my years, I've actually moved away from that sort of direct service, direct development work into this more academic setting. And in fact, a lot of the work that I do now is. How do we unlock uh, you know market rate development to build market rate homes? Um, because I, I do think that ultimately the, the the sort of the big systems level change that we need is to figure out how to uh, simply so get a lot more housing getting built. And so there is a little bit of an irony in, yeah. you know, for this guy who started off in his career, you know, building. Homes for homeless people. Now I feel like I'm somebody's out there advocating for like luxury condos to come up. But I think but I think there is a relationship here and there is an interconnection between the whole housing ecosystem and kind of the folks who are, are homeless.
1: Yeah. And I I sympathize very much because from my probably more conservative point of view, at least um, you know, class classically conservatives, like I think, well, if there were not so many regulations if you didn't have to do an environmental impact study if you didn't have to have this many square feet for this many this and that and the other thing you just build it or if you could have many people sharing some some units you know as we probably all did unofficially at some point as college students or at other times if you could have multiple people just sort of splitting the rent um that that could go a lot further i i applaud that that experiment that you did just living side by side with people who were you know in permanent housing and you could probably learn a lot from them and they could probably learn a lot from you about how to, uh, pay bills on time or, or whatever, you know, like, or, or did they already know that? Were they just, uh, are they victims of tough luck or they just not uh, acquire the, for one reason or the other, the sort of social skills that, that come to people in fortunate circumstances, who's, uh, like, like, like you, like you and me.
0: Yeah. I really
1: liked this, this
0: community that I was a part of, uh... I actually, it was right in the Times, right in Times Square in Manhattan. It Was um, uh, the the group I was working for is uh, uh, Common Ground? Um, it was run at the time by a woman named Roseanne Haggerty, who's now still still doing this work. With a group that's now called Community Solutions. I, I really liked the model there uh, in a couple of ways. One was that it was a sort of integrated uh, 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 opportunity, so you did have folks who who were coming off the streets, living side by side with. Um, Other folks who were certainly low income as well, but didn't have the same sort of chronic homelessness background, Um, and I think particularly for folks who who had been homeless for a long time, there was something helpful about not putting them back into an institutional feeling setting, right? Like, you know, there was a point in our country's history where the solution was to put people like, take them off who would have been on the streets, you put them into mental hospitals. And that institutionalization, I think, was really destructive. Like, it destroyed a lot of people's lives um, and sort of assumed that they were incapable of, of improving their lot or, or remedying their mental health challenges. And I think the sort of optimism that comes from sort of saying to somebody, "Hey, we're going to take you off. We understand you have addiction, health, mental health problems, whatever it is, but we fundamentally believe in you such that we're going to just give you an apartment. Uh, make the apartment available to you. There's no sobriety test. There's no um, requirement that you have to, you know, do a bunch of things before you move in. We're just going to believe it. We're just going to move you into a home and we're going to put you side by side with people who have sort of already figured it out. And, um, you know, do really do two things. One is sort of create the environment where you can sort of rebuild some of that informal social network that you lost, right? I mean, I think a lot of the people that I was meeting, like they were, they were alienated from family. Yeah. They had lost either either on the on the route into homelessness or while they're in homelessness, their social network had frayed or just collapsed. They didn't have friends and family they could fall back on. And they needed to just sort of build that back up in ways that were diversified. They didn't just consist of other people who were experiencing the same things they were. Um, and then also some some formal supports, right? Like people. Like it it was amazing to me. Like there were folks who, who just didn't know, like they were entitled, like, oh, I have a disability. I didn't realize that meant that I could apply for social security. Like I didn't even know. And even if they did know, they wouldn't know where to begin to actually put the paperwork in. Um, or folks who like had an interest in sort of reengaging some sort of work skill or getting back in, in into school, but like didn't even know where to start. And so a little bit of help to sort of just walk them through the steps, a little bit of accountability to hold them to their vision. Was really was really powerful in terms of actually getting them in and keeping them out, and and these kinds of settings are super super successful. I mean the the failure rate, right? Like the number of times that folks go back onto the streets after gaining permanent supportive housing was really dwindlingly low. I think it's maybe you know something like seven or eight uh, percent of folks who go and get into housing like this ever ever end up falling back into homelessness, which is a, which is pretty good.
1: So does this mean that the 80% of people who pass through homelessness who are not chronically homeless the people who had a you know a few bad bad strokes but they they can't stand on their own once they get a break that even if homelessness increases or decreases or stays the same they are different people month to month or year to year than the ones who were there last year as opposed to the homeless people who i think are visibly you know uh not all there that, that yeah. you call that you call chronic chronic homeless yeah. who are the same guy who was there five years ago ten years ago
0: yeah I mean that the other 80 yeah.
1: percent is passing they' they're
0: exactly they're yeah. they're flowing in uh to the system and then flowing right back out of the system um I mean there's also a fair amount of turnover within you know the the chronic I mean a lot of chronic people will also go into a shelter and then go back out to an encampment they'll Hitch up, hook yeah. up with a friend, and then go back out to a tent. And I, I do say this to, to to folks sometimes. I say, you know, there's we're actually doing everything right in terms of trying to help those folks in those encampments get back and get stably housed. Like we're, we've been investing very heavily in these kinds of permanent supportive housing solutions, but it, because the inflow is so large, I mean, you you may look at an encampment, uh, you know, in downtown San Francisco and sort of see the same number of tents that you did six months or a year ago. But the people who are living in those tents are often different, right? Like someone, some significant number of them have, have actually moved on and up because they've been supported by the kinds of things we've been talking about. But unfortunately, because the sort of the flow is still pushing people out, tents are being occupied by by new folks who are then stuck there for some period of time.
1: Well, I think that's huge because I, I also think most people would not assume that or guess that. Yeah. You no, know, I don't think we take time to look closely. I don't think we take time to have conversations and get to know but you've got a, a, an army of volunteers every February who goes by and says, Oh, what's your name? Oh, you're Joe. Okay. Last year, Bill was here and, and next year it's going to be so-and-so. And, um, that's a tremendous success story, I think. So are you pretty confident and, and, uh, satisfied or are you, are you feeling a looming dread <laughs> when you consider our society? Yeah.
0: Now? So, so like in my in my mind, there's like two really big, complicated solutions to this that are, that look very different in execution, and both of them are really achievable. Uh, one is places like California need to start building homes at the rate that um, you know that, that we. So California half a century ago in the 1960s and 70s was building you know two times as many homes in any given year. At a state with a third of the population, we need to kind of figure out how to get back to that. We need to actually look more like Atlanta or Houston in terms of the number of homes that we're building, just because we've got to figure out a way to keep rents more affordable. So, are you and, saying and we they'll... need
1: re- Republican governors? Is that what you're saying?
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I think the art
0: is that we we need to figure out how to do it in a California style, which is a, which you know is is you know aware of. The climate challenges that we face. I mean, I don't really want, <laughs> you know, to develop uh, all of our open land uh, and have sprawl going on forever. I mean, I think there are ways to build uh, smaller homes and do it more densely, and I think we have to figure out how to do that. So that's like one big challenge that's ahead of us. And and actually, we are making like happy talk about that, but we are making some progress there. I do believe. And then the other piece of it is actually so even Houston or Atlanta, even though they've been building a lot of homes. Um have had you know nontrivially large homeless populations, but those are actually two really good examples of cities that have taken uh, the homelessness issue really seriously and have said, okay, we ha- we have a chronic housing chronic homeless Houston population. and Atlanta
1: Houston, Atlanta?
0: yeah, okay. Um, Houston in particular has gotten a lot of press for this actually they 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 basically said, we have a very large homeless population, and we uh, we want to do something about that. And even though housing is relatively cheap in Houston, we recognize that there are people that sort of like, no matter how cheap the housing is, they have issues that they need to work through and we need to help them uh, to solve those issues if they're going to uh, resolve their homelessness. And, and the key to having them resolve their issues is to get them into some kind of supportive housing. And what Houston has done really well is uh, pull together like a hundred different agencies that are all touching the homelessness issue and basically force them all to sort of Talk off the same script, work off the same playbook. Part of that is really like creating sort of big performance dashboards that are really tracking progress, that are sort of counting in real time how many homeless people we have. Uh, we need to move at least ten in you know off the streets this week. Who's you know who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? They have by name registries where they literally. You oh like wow. Caseworkers who, yeah, literally every single person in Houston—they they have a name on them. They know what their situation is. They're trying to come up with customized solutions, um and they're tracking that wow. individual as they work their way forward. Um, so that 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 is great. Houston has been able to get their homeless numbers down by like half over a four-year, five-year period because they've really taken this issue seriously and sort of cut through a lot of the red tape to come up with these solutions. And. I, there's a campaign going on across the country uh, called the Built, Built for Zero campaign, uh, whose premise is that it is possible to get to what's called functional zero for homeless hmm. people. Uh, that, that actually, if you get government to work in the way that it should, um, you can you can get homelessness to a place where it is uh, brief. Um, you know, it's rare, it's brief when it happens, and it's non recurring. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's probably a hundred communities around the country now that have signed on to this Built for Zero campaign, and and
1: and, and oh, we're built, seeing the built, first sort of Built for Zero, Built for Zero.
0: Yeah. Okay. And it's super cool. We're seeing the first chunk of them actually saying, uh, "We've done it. We actually have gotten our communities down to functional oh, zero. Fantastic. Um, you know, Riverside here in California is a good example of community. Salt Lake City has actually done amazing work in this space, and. The way they've tended to do it is actually to have broken the homeless population down and they've really mobilized political support almost always around veterans first. It's veterans are yeah. it's easy to rally for vets. Uh, veteran homelessness has been a big issue. So all these communities started there. They said, hey, we're just going to do it. We're going to get veteran homelessness down to zero. And they build a good data system. They get all of the organizations to show up like every week to a meeting. Uh, they they list all the vets who are homeless by name and they just click through them until they get them all housed. And there's always some, you know, there's some number, the functional zero, there's always some number that are falling back in, but if your system's working, you're grabbing them right away and you're figuring out a solution. for them. Um, and after the vets, it's really been family homeless. Like that's been the second priority. Um, how do we get, you know, families who are experienced, kids, kids, let's actually enumerate them all and come up with solutions for them. And then mm-hmm. once communities have figured out vets and they've figured out families, then they've typically sort of said okay let's go to this, the single individuals who are, who are on the street and um and so i think that's a really promising model so yeah. i think there's a world in which places like california just have to figure out how to unlock more housing at large um and they have to come up with a sort of customized solution to deal with these most vulnerable disabled um you know uh individuals struggling with mental illness and substance abuse and just figure out a way to get them back on their feet
1: Well, I want to ask you about that, but before I just want to stop for a second and say how beautiful it is to see that this is not going to be in the newspaper, but how much the government works and you, the main guy in California and whoever the main guy or lady is in Salt Lake City or in Texas or in Georgia, you've all figured out a way to work together and solve something we all care about. Doesn't matter how conservative or progressive or left or right or this or that it's such a good story. I wish we, we talked about it more as we are here, you know, because I'm sure there's a hundred things you guys disagree about, but you guys work together effectively (laughs) to help the least of our brothers and sisters. So congratulations for that. Um, Second. Okay. So now we're down to the last 20%. And these are the chronic homeless. These are the ones who I see. Like I see the same guy sitting by a cardboard sign as I get off the freeway, he has a sign that says every bit helps, but behind that sign, he's sitting there scrolling through his cell phone. So that's a really interesting kind of poverty because he clearly has a way to charge his phone. He clearly has a telephone. He has more material wealth than many of our ancestors 100 years ago, but the way he spends his daytime is sitting by the side of the freeway collecting collecting money. And I'm very happy to you know buy a guy a sandwich and talk to him for two minutes, but I don't know that that ever helps. I don't know that like it ever says like, Okay, this is however you're charging your phone, it's not it's not getting you forward to the place I want you to be where you no longer think it's a good use of your time to be sitting here on 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 the off ramp, let alone all the really crazy people. <laughs> and we have a lot. And, and you and I have a very close friend in our lives who's a policeman at the university where you work, and he has to move the same mother and son team off of the same steps on university hall every day. and, They've gotten them apartments. They don't want them. They've moved them into the bushes off the steps. They don't want them. They just want to sit there on the steps. Like That kind of poverty is hard for us to understand because it's not about money. How do you attack that last 20%? Is that something government can do at all or is it just for...
0: I mean, I think for most of us who are living our lives and are not sort of directly in the fight here, I think almost the best thing you could do is really try to help people who are housed but are super vulnerable from falling into homelessness. Again, I can't understate like the moment you fall into homelessness, how much your life upends itself and how everything you take for granted falls apart. All of the things that could go wrong, start to go wrong in your life. I mean, especially if there are kids involved, you find that you're moving schools. They're not getting good night's sleep. You're becoming susceptible to illness, all, all this kind of stuff. Trying to figure out how to help people before they fall into homelessness is
1: is. So so you're saying like hey here's a person on my radar they look to me like they're in trouble maybe i can help them with their rent or buy them some groceries or exactly just, just exactly. bring bring yeah. them a casserole and listen to their problems exactly okay. and i think we we forget too like
0: we we're really um we've become a nation of people who are often so isolated from each other you know we've heard about the loneliness epidemic we've heard about you know the loss of social capital I mean, a lot of folks do fall into homelessness because they just don't know who to turn to, right? They don't have a social network. They don't have um, extended relatives. I mean, that's a big difference maker from what the world looks like, our ancestors, right? Like, you know, a century or two centuries ago, there was much more of a a healthy norm, I think, that you would take in an extended family member uh, or you would reach out a hand to a distressed, you know, but distant friend, for a period of time, and, and I think we've that social network has just frayed across the board for all of us. So there's an economic piece to this, right? Like, yeah, somebody might just need a little bit of money to tie them over, but a lot of this can also be helped just by by sticking out a helpful hand and, and helping people and checking in with them before they happen. I mean, the, the issue with somebody who's on the street, I think you nailed perfectly. It's not clear to me that giving them a sandwich and talking to them, I mean, it certainly will, make, it will improve their well-being for that day. Um, and there's a lot of good work that's done around just improving quality of life too, right? Like people who are on the street can really hurt themselves. They can um, do a lot of damage to themselves. And so just sort of trying to mitigate that a little bit is good, but there's very little evidence to suggest that those kinds of handouts or giving anybody a dollar or a sandwich is actually going to be the thing that helps get them back on their feet. The thing that they need is not the thing that they need is a place to live. And the research is pretty clear on this until you actually get somebody moved into a stable um home yeah you know a place where they have a bed like nothing else gets fixed
1: yeah but it's a free country and if you refuse to go live in an apartment and not smash it up like nobody can do anything to you right that's
0: so so here's what i love about houston yeah. right yeah like you basically what they've done is they've created this list of people that they know are unhoused that are chronically homeless and they've basically said we've got to get Joe Smith off the streets. He's a danger to himself. He's a danger potentially to others. And we've just got to make it happen. And so by organizing all of these social service agencies collectively around like this, you know, Joe is the person we need to focus on. You just make it happen. And here's what's interesting to me (laughs) is that a a lot of social workers, if you talk to social workers in the homeless space, they'll tell you, when I go and say hi to Joe, he tells me to screw off. Okay. The first time, the second time I show up and now he sort of says a couple sentences and then he's like, okay, I'm done here. The third day, maybe I show up with a cup of coffee and he takes the coffee. The fourth day, maybe I sit with him for an hour. Maybe it takes three weeks, but after I work on it long enough, I get him to a place where I convince him that he should walk down a couple blocks of me and look at a a housing option. And I think that is the lived reality of people who are doing social work in this space. There really isn't anybody who's choosing to be on the street, um, living chronically homelessness as a lifestyle choice. It's not what anybody wants who's a human being.
1: Yeah, It's just that they
0: are in such a weird headspace that they are resistant to that offer of help but a trained professional a trained social worker will eventually convince them uh that this is in their best interest and will help them get over the hump and get them into housing where they can get stabilized and where they can get to help and sometimes it's a lot of work and i guess chris you could say you know do we as a society really owe it to that individual individual to do (laughs) like 23 cups of coffee until we can wear them down and here i would say I mean, yeah, I think moral, I mean, I think, yeah, we have a moral and ethical obligation to our fellow humans to just help them get out of the hole they're in, right? I think that's probably good, a good enough answer. And if that doesn't work for you, the other answer, which is super compelling is, you know, every chronically homeless person costs society a vast <laughs> amount of money. No, you and, had me at the it first is more answer. expensive to have somebody living on the street than it is to do just about anything, put them into, you know, like the number of hospital visits they end up in and you have the police, you know, calls that, you know, people do, they rack up huge tabs that are many multiples of what we pay that social worker to do all those friendly visits and friendly cups of coffee.
1: No, yeah, well, first of all, this is a, a Catholic Christian podcast. So yes, obviously, <laughs> that's I got, I, the that's the one thing we're to supposed go. to be. Okay. <laughs> that's the one thing we're supposed to be doing after loving God. We're supposed to be loving our neighbors. So I I appreciate that you've very generously been talking about policy with me for you know ha- over half an hour. But yeah, that's that's the whole point of of why we're here in, in the first place, and that's the um, starting point. So um, let me ask you. You are an Episcopalian. You're a you're you're a you're a Christian. Jer- Jerry Brown is a Catholic. Barack Obama is a um, I think he's an evangelical Protestant. I'm not exactly sure, but I know that you know his stepfather was was Muslim in Indonesia, and I know that he found his Christian faith and he talked about it in in some magazines and in and in one of his memoirs. I remember, I remember that he found his own way there. Was working in one of these places. You know what were your colleagues? I, I think in uh, you know, democratic administrations is probably it's probably something people don't talk about. How has your faith informed your work? How has it informed the places you've worked? How has the faith of uh, governor brown or or Barack Obama um, influenced the office if at all? My faith motivates me
0: i do i do I do approach my my life and my work from a perspective of wanting to imp- improved a lot of the people that I am with wanting to help. Um, I, I'm motivated by a commitment to social justice. I'm motivated by a commitment to giving something to the community that I am a part of. Um, my Episcopal upbringing was very far forward on that idea that, you know, we come together as a community because in that communion, we find uh, ways to um improved a lot of, you know, not only each other in communion, but uh, our neighborhoods and communities, larger communities in which our congregation exists. Um, and I've always wanted to have a life of purpose. Um, I was certainly drawn to work to both Barack Obama and Jerry Brown because they each in their own very different way invoked a sort of a higher purpose and a sense of meaning into what it meant to work in government right like i think a different leader might have been more focused on personal enrichment might have been more focused on glory mother power but i think both of them <laughs> in their own way kept reminding those of us who are doing the work of government to uh understand that higher calling and 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 messaged it as something that would be motivating for all of us that said (laughs) like you know discussion of religion discussion of using faith as um any kind of sort of test or question that you would ask or uh invoking god in anything but a very abstract way was not really a practice in either the federal government or the state government when i when i was there um I think both Brown and Obama were were very aware that, you know, the civil service in both organizations were very, you know, very diverse in terms Mm -hmm. of the faith and whether they were people of faith at all. And, um, and although they wanted to inspire us to follow our better angels, they, they, yeah, they, they 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 didn't see it as a prere- pre certainly as a prerequisite that either those of us who worked in government or those who benefited from us you know had to or needed to be actively involved in over the just calling. We had at HUD. We had an office, a faith based office, um, whose job it was was to connect and liaise with pastors and congregational leaders. Um, And so, you know, arguably that was a manifestation of of a sort of a a, 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 you know an interest in faith, but arguably it was also just smart governance and politics, right? Like, in fact, you know, as you know, Chris, it's it's for many of your other podcasts, you know, it is our pastors and religious leaders who who are often doing the hard work of trying to move us towards a better society and trying to figure out ways to bring those folks together around new governmental programs and to get their feedback as new governmental programs come out is critically important for good good governance.
1: Yeah, no, and I think we live in a funny time because on the one hand, the principles of Christianity that have uh, sort of dyed the wool of our society over the last 2000 years, we now take for granted that everybody has dignity and everybody has rights. And I don't care what you look like or how rich or poor you are or anything else. You're still a priceless Member of this family, um, I'm now I'm forgetting who it was. It was a it was it was a Democrat. Oh, it was Christopher Reeve. Remember Christopher Reeve, who played Superman? No. And oh yes, <laughs> and, he, and he was in a wheel. He broke his neck, I think. And at one of the Democratic National Conventions, he was sort of pushing back against the Republicans who were talking about family values. And he said, like, you know what I think about family values? He said, I think we are all a family. And we all have value and it was yeah it was so lovely um and it reveals for me that you know i live in a society surrounded by secular atheists many of whom behave beautifully and charitably to each other and to me every single day and so trying to talk about faith is is funny and tricky because i almost feel like i'm pushing a tribal agenda when I'm really trying to give a name and a face and an origin to something, we all already believe and encourage somebody into a relationship that they don't even know they're missing. (laughs) Um, So I, I, you know, I work in a public school, you work in the government of the state uh, and it's a little out of place. You know, the things I want to say there, I can feel, I'm not going to say them. they're they're out of, they're out of place. But um, the last thing I want to ask you about is 30, 29 years ago in 1994 in December, we went skiing and then we and a few other friends of ours went to see a movie and we saw the movie. It was a very late movie. And by the time we got back to the trailhead on the way to your cabin, our parking spot was missing and we had to park on the highway, but not on the shoulder, right? Maybe it was snowing or maybe somebody else had parked there and we were like, shoot, it's 1am and we can't leave the car on the highway, we got to go find another place to park. And out of the night <laughs> there came a light down Highway 4, and it was a snow plow, and it dug one parking spot, and it did a three-point turn and disappeared back into the night. What do you think about the snow plow that made us a parking spot at 1 a.m. when we were trying to get back home, what was that? What, what do you think that was?
0: So we will never know, but I choose to believe that it was a miracle. (laughs) It certainly felt like a miracle. Uh, And yeah, I think, I I don't know, you know, I don't, um, I think the world is a more interesting place. Uh, Reality is a more interesting experience if, uh, if there are miracles in our lives. And uh, Chris, if you choose to see that as a miracle, I'm, I'm 100% with you. Uh, inexplicable, uh, totally unforeseen, totally unexplainable event that uh, infused us <laughs> with joy and happiness <laughs> and reminded us that there are uh, an infinite number of things which we do not yeah. have good explanations for in this life. Um, so yeah, a yeah. very good time and a good memory. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I, I i heard someone say that the definition of miracle was something that increases faith. And I've been Googling that every once in a while. I have no idea who said that or where or whose principle that is that a miracle, it doesn't have to be something that defies nature. It just has to be something that increases faith. Um, So I can't find the original source of that. I never have been able to. But I, I have so many little miracles where I'm worried about something and I happen to open you know, the gospel and my, my answer is there. Or I have a dream and my answer is there. So the brain is very complicated. Uh, who knows what's going on in the, I think it's 86 billion neurons that are firing all the time in this three and a half pound piece of meat inside my head. Um, but that, that answers the how, it doesn't answer the why. Um. What What do you think? Where are you as a, you know, as we we used to be teenagers. Now we're middle aged gentlemen, and <laughs> we have kids of our own who you know are teenagers now. But we'll will be off to college soon. Where Where are you? Where Where are you headed?
0: I like to start from this sort of presumption of inexplicable, I do like to start with the presumption of inexplicable mystery. Like there is more to this world <laughs> than than we can see or feel on a daily basis. And that life's great uh, journey is trying to seek and understand the mystery that is out there. Uh, and that the way that we you know, best do that is through service to others and through the communion and uh, sharing of those life's experiences with our our dear friends. And um, Chris, it it has been a joy to walk side by side with you for, uh, I think you said three decades.
1: Three decades. uh,
0: As we have stumbled, fell, gone sideways, um, uh, each in our own way uh, to try and find a few answers and have a little bit of fun uh, Way.
1: Ben Mecca, thank you so much for being on Almost with Catholics. My pleasure. Nails, spear shall pierce Him through the cross Be born for me, for you And hail, hail the Word made flesh The Babe, the Son of Mary Chris O'Dinius and Ben Metcalf recorded this conversation, episode 63, on Thursday, July 13th, 2023. July 13th is the saint's day for the prophet Ezra, the scribe who helped the Jews reestablish their community and traditions after their return from the Babylonian captivity in the 5th century BC. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band and their website is www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the image of the dog, is from a stained glass window at Santo Domingo dos Silos in Spain and is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland and Wales. From their website, www.english.op.org. I'm Chris O'Dinance, and thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you soon. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds God and angels sing.